In this episode, I invite Urbaz Wahab, a lawyer that advises small to medium-sized tech companies on navigating the legal and regulatory risks associated with digital assets, crypto infrastructure, and securities compliance. We discussed many interesting topics, and among those were the purpose of regulation and its misconceptions, if technology and regulation will ever evolve at the same pace, and how founders using new technologies can protect themselves, and the conflicts some founders experience when advocating for decentralization but have to engage with centralized entities like the federal government. Of course, nothing said here is legal advice. Enjoy. All right, Urbaz, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to Now and Next. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Evan. I'm, I'm good, man. I just, uh, it's been a, it's a beautiful day outside and I didn't really get a chance to go outside yet, but uh, I know that, you know, technology and everything that's keeping me inside is great as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to announce that Urbaz is a new father, uh, recently, recently became a, a father. And uh, so congratulations. I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful experience. Appreciate it, man. And uh, wishing you all the love and health and happiness to you, to you and the family. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. So, so um, I'd love for you. I know we had a call a couple of weeks, maybe about a month or two now to just kind of get to know each other a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and I, I was really looking forward to inter- interviewing you. So I'd love for this audience to uh, hear like a one, two minute, very quick intro around who is Urbaz? What, what do you do? And um, what is your relationship when it comes to emerging technologies? Awesome. So yeah, so my name is Arbaz. Uh, I'm a lawyer, a startup founder, legal advisor to to startups, to small to medium-sized businesses, primarily in the tech sector. Uh, I love working with people who are innovative, always trying to break the barrier and spearhead change. Um, and I guess that's the reason why I got into what I'm doing right now. And meeting founders on a daily basis or talking to them about, about their idea and how I can help them grow their businesses through the law and the complexities of the law is what kind of drives me, right? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I'm, uh, you know, constantly posting everywhere about things that, that are, I guess, uh, in the forefront of technology. And that's, I guess, how me and Evan actually, uh, you know, got introduced to each other. Uh, you know, we both love technology and I guess that's what really brought us together. Yeah. Yeah. I was posting a lot about web free stuff. I recently pivoting doing this podcast. Now that'll be my, my main source of content. Nice. Um, and, uh, and that's awesome. So, so when it comes to law, because now you're, you're, you're a lawyer in the emerging tech space, yeah. you, you do a lot in the crypto slash Web3 space, how important is regulation? Like, I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but from your perspective, I'd love to hear, uh, given that you're in the middle of, you know, the founder who has these brilliant big ideas, yeah. and then you're also here to interpret the law. Um, so how important is regulation? Where are we at when it comes to regulating these types of emerging tech, like the web free space, maybe AI, if you've been touching on that yeah. uh, as well, I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah. So I think that the, there are a couple of misconceptions that people have when they think of regulation policies and legislations as a whole. Um, a lot of the times people have this, uh, stigma around regulation that it's going to freeze or curtail or really pause, uh, emerging technology and technology as a whole. But in reality, it's not meant for that. The, the, the underlying intent is to kind of create a free system, a create a free society uh, that allows for freedom of competition, to protect the consumer at the end of the day, and to flourish technology when it is important to, to flourish and when we can have guidelines and security measures to protect the, the, tech, um, the consumer at the end of the day and also you know, how we interact with people. So I would say that technology 
or regulation really does three things when it comes to technology. The first thing is that regulation can support technology, things by way of grants. You know, sometimes you'll see that, you know, the Canadian government recently released a $15,000 grant for, um, you know, digital, uh, uh, so for startups and small size businesses to kind of create their brick and mortar stores to be more digital, to get more AI or, or coding involved in their, their, their companies. So they can actually flourish, uh, uh, you know, innovation. The second thing that I can also do is also pause innovation, not necessarily completely stop it, but pause it. And a good example of this is what the OSC or the Canadian Securities Administrator re recently did, um, where they kind of had more regulation on uh, crypto trading platforms. And they said that in order for you to kind of continue to be within the regulation and operate as a crypto trading platform, you have to abide by um, these new rules and regulations, i.e., uh, conduct a pre-registration, right? To to kind of uh, know that you know there are re rules that are being uh, you know delivered and and released on a monthly or even yearly basis. But in order for you to kind of play within those rules, you have to kind of sign up and 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 it is it is a bit a little bit costly to kind of register. And that's why you see some of these companies actually leaving the Canadian market. Like recently, you see Binance actually leaving the Canadian market because they felt that the regulators were making it difficult and they had a lot of regulatory burden, right? That's the second one. The last thing is the, the exact opposite. Sometimes we're in a scenario where we actually have to stop um, uh, emerging technology. And a good example of that is ChatGPT3 and, and AI. One of the things you probably see in the news uh, quite frequently is the idea of access to privacy and the right to privacy. And ChatGPT3 and some of these new AI chatbots kind of go around that. You know, we don't really know how they're collecting this information, whose information they're using, whether or not we can delete our information from their databases, this kind of stuff, right? So there are uh, players, uh, stakeholders and regulatory bodies who are in charge of kind of pausing that innovation to see if they can kind of catch up to it, right? There's there's a lot of things that happen. There are companies left, right, and center introducing ChatGPT into their models and uh, in, in their business lines and all that kind of stuff. But we kind of need to get a control of it to know exactly what it's like. And it's very similar to like um, uh, in, in the medical practice, right? Like if you have like a, a new drug that you're testing out, but you don't necessarily know the, know the long-term effects of it and who it's going to affect, you don't necessarily want to, you know, get it out to the market right away, right? You want to make sure that you can do clinical trials on it. You want to test it to see how it affects certain people, short-term, long-term, that kind of stuff. And regulatory, um, uh, you know, regulators are very similar like that, right? They, they want to make sure that they understand the risks that are involved, not just in companies, but also consumers, right? Mm. I like that you brought the different um, viewpoints when it comes to regulation, because I will admit when I hear the word regulation, there's like a little feeling of negativity there. Although yeah. I do understand that it is required when it comes to the Web3 space because it is so new. I'm going to be selfish and say that in the AI space, yes, I want regulation, but I also don't want to lose access to ChatGPT because exactly. it has been so useful. So in an ideal, perfect world, you know, the, the, the government or whoever can wake up Say, we get it, you know, we studied all night, we get all the implications, here's what you can and can't do, and everyone can continue using these tools. But that is not the reality. So there's a, there's a friction between where tech and other innovative uh, fields are, like the rate of change of innovation yeah. and, and where, how fast regulators can consume the information, understand it properly, evaluate risk, short-term, long-term, and then deliver something that benefits their, their citizens. Yeah. Is there... Is there a way to speed this up? Are you, is this something that you're looking into? Do you know something or people in the government that work in this space in terms of like regulation and emerging tech and are looking at how to speed this up? 
So within my industries, I kind of deal with a lot of securities and uh, small to medium-sized portfolio managers. And some of them that are in the crypto space and helping individuals invest in that space, there's this thing called the OSC Launchpad, right? And it's a way for, um, you know, regulatory, uh, so people who are within the regulatory space, so like crypto platforms, uh, companies who are kind of launching these new innovative ideas to kind of test that idea out within that launchpad. So they can go in, they can ask the regulator whatever questions they have regarding their company and do it in a free space where they won't necessarily be fined for what they're doing at that time, right? And the idea is that they do it in a way that they can, you know, understand the long-term effects of it by asking these questions earlier on so they can make those changes so that they're not dealing with a situation where, hey, listen, when we when you, you know, decided to launch this product, you weren't aware of the risks that that could have, uh, you know, came to you or the fines that are going to be levied on you after launching that product. So these are some of the ways that I guess regulators are kind of allowing for innovation to have OSC Launchpad. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Another way that a lot of them do it as well is that some of the government uh, organizations are uh, partner up with like incubators, right? So they know what are some of the, uh, you know, the companies that are coming up and what, what are some of their ideas and how it affects uh, society at large. And I guess that's when they can step in and be like, hey, listen, I don't know if we agree with this certain approach to how you're kind of dealing with uh, technology. But as a whole, if we're looking at the crypto space in general, I would say that OSC is a great place, but also just talking to your local uh, you know, lawyer, somebody who's kind of well-versed in that area, aside from regulators, because a lot of them are friends with regulators. You know, They've dealt with regulators on a daily basis because um, they have clients who kind of you know, sometimes do get into a little bit of trouble with them. So they know where there, there is that little soft spot to be like, well, you can operate in this space and not be fine. But also, it gives them a great opportunity to be like, okay, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And here's the gray space where you can kind of operate in. You might not get fined, but you might get fined. So this is a business decision. So it's a great opportunity to just contact a lawyer, have a free consultation. A lot of them do offer that where you can just talk to them about your idea and see uh, you know, whether or not it is compliant with current regulation. Yeah. You offer free consultations too. just want to throw that I out do. There, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so it's me get Shameless first plug. hand. I, I mean, yeah, I, well, let's own it. No shame. Um, <laughs> so, so that, that o, OSC, uh, yeah, the we're going to yeah. okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put that link there so that innovators or people who weren't aware can, can explore that, um, in the show notes. So what are the most common legal and regulatory challenges that you're seeing in your field, which is the web three space primarily, right? I think that you mentioned something earlier on between AI, privacy, and Web3. And interestingly enough, a lot of these intersect, right? So you either have, so it, like, I guess it depends on the company that you're, you're, you're building out in the Web3 space. A lot of them are people who are doing tokenomics, NFTs, um, you know, people who are kind of trying to trade, but they don't want to kind of term their company as a secured token or that kind of stuff, right? So there's three ways you have to look at regulation, right? The first one is to know whether or not what you're doing is, uh, kind of goes under security regulation, right? If that's so, then you have to kind of play within the security rules. The second one is, regardless of whether or not you're, what you're doing is within the realm of Canadian securities law, you still have to abide by certain technology uh, regulation that is out there in Canada. Things like uh, PIPEDA, which is the Privacy Freedom of Privacy Information Act, right? This, uh, this act kind of is not necessarily the, I would say the gold standard is GDP, uh, sorry, the GDPR, which is the one that is in the EU. But it's the idea that says that, listen, if you're going to use data 
on your customers and your users, then you have to do it in a way that they're allowed to kind of correct that information. They can remove that information. They know what you're doing with that information and consent, which is really important, right? So I would say the, one of the most common um, challenges that we face, uh, you know, as lawyers or companies that come to me and they ask me for help is within the, the privacy space, right? Privacy and then things like your terms of use and how you kind of uh, are engaging with your clients and users while creating these quote-unquote click wrap agreements or these, um, let's say, uh, you know, interactions and relationship while you're doing it online and not really signing pieces of papers, right? So I would say that's probably the most difficult um, thing to kind of wrap my uh, wrap the, the client's head around sometimes. Okay. And that's something that you see often is this whole, is the privacy aspect, people coming to you and asking, how can I make my business grow and thrive while still respecting the privacy laws that are- Exactly. Yeah. That and also like, you know, how do we engage with our consumers in a way that, because we're dealing with so many of them, right? We can't sit there and have like contracts individually with each one of them and dictate our relationship as a company with them. So the best way to do it is terms of use, terms of conditions, these kind of things. So I would say the way that I operate is I kind of attack those three areas first, right? Are you regulatory compliant? Yes. Next, let's look look at your privacy policy and things that you're doing from a privacy standpoint. You know, where are you shipping that data? Because nowadays, data is probably the one of the most important pieces of important commodities. I think you, you've probably seen this in the news recently where they talk about how it's data is, is more of an investable commodity than gold now, right? Because it's traded so often and companies are using their consumers and their users' data to sell it to other companies. And some of that is, you know, illegal and you're not allowed to do that. But some of that is above the law because they're asking for explicit consent from their customers and their users, right? So these are things that, you know, you know, as as Canada, as a, as a country uh, grows in regulation and starts creating these things within that sphere of, you know, a new AI policy, new AI like regulation and new privacy regulation as it adapts and goes forward. Uh, these are things that I, I make sure that my clients know and they're aware of, right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make an intro. I don't care about this part. I'm going to keep it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will make an intro saying that nothing said here is financial or legal advice. Good. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will be in the intro and it is at this point um, said at the 13 minute mark here. Um, you mentioned a keyword and I'd love to get your perspective without it being legal advice, uh, yeah, yeah. official legal advice, but you said it is explicitly stated in the terms of use or terms and conditions, right? If these terms and conditions are often massively long, that yeah. the average person, even if they read it, might not even be able to understand all the terms uh, to get a full understanding of what these terms are and to fully give their consent and agree to everything. So how do you define explicit when A, they are way too long for the average person to read, and B, if the average person would have read it, they probably would not understand all the terms being used in these terms and conditions. Yeah, so I think that one of the things that there's a huge shift in is, is how lawyers are drafting these privacy policies in terms of conditions. You'll see a lot of startups, their terms of use are not legalese. They're very easy to understand. And a lot, I guess the misconception is that because they're so long, people are not going to sit there and read it anyway. But as a lawyer and as somebody who's kind of like recommending people sit down and read it because they're, I guess the drawback is that you won't know what's happening with your data if you're not reading what they're kind of using your data for, right? So, uh, yeah, there is, a, I guess, a certain pushback to be like, well, these terms are very long. Nobody's going to sit there and read it and do that kind of stuff. But companies still have to kind of mention it to them. Well, well this is how we're kind of using your data and this is the consent we're using your data for and purpose. And consent and purpose can be derived from not just, 
you know, clicking an agreement and kind of moving forward. It's also how you engage with the website. So things like, you know, um, uh, filling out online forms, right? There's sometimes there you'll have disclaimers, be like, we're using your data for X, Y, Z, right? But sometimes it's kind of a natural progression. So for example, like, you know, you're going on, um, uh, let's say Instagram, right? You're using Instagram for a certain reason, right? And you, you're posting on Instagram, you're posting your public life and that kind of stuff. There's the there's there's the sense of understanding as you use these social media platforms of what you're sharing is obviously going to be public, right? But there's the other aspect of it of how they kind of track your time, what you're using, and then push out that marketing to you. That stuff of it, I can understand. But things that there's that implicit understanding of what you're kind of giving your data for, and that data could be shareable pictures and videos and and hashtags to kind of showcase that that platform what you're actually interested in, and then they them using that data based off of what you gave them, because there, there is that level of consent there, right? There's that chain of consent. Yeah, I, I, to, to clarify, I wasn't saying, you know, companies shouldn't have these terms and conditions yeah, and yeah. privacy policies anymore. Um, it's just, I, and I know that with, with, without getting too technical, NFTs and, and token, tokenization is enabling, A, the user to have more control over their own data, uh, and B, for, for them to revoke, give access to, and remove the need for cookies. So yeah. without the need for cookies, I'm sure these terms and conditions and privacy policies will change. I, I was just curious to understand and know if, is it really, is it a, is it a, I'm trying to formulate this right, but the expectation that is put on the consumer to read and consume these long privacy policies, is it fair? Maybe, maybe this is now it's outside of the legal stuff and yeah. we're going into the ethics and fairness. But is it fair to assume that someone would read a 20-page privacy policy just to access Instagram? I'm not saying Instagram is 20 pages, but let's insert X app or website. Yeah. Um, is that fair? And, and maybe we're, because of tokenization and NFTs, we're, we're, we won't need that 20-page. You know, it might be five. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but yeah, it definitely has a use. Tokenization has a use case when we're talking about control because... Um, we're now able to pick and choose where we want to, who we want to give our data to. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, I agree with you, Evan. I think that that's a fair question to ask whether or not it's fair for the consumer to kind of, uh, the expectation is for them to understand everything that's being pulled out and that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that like one of the, I guess the expectation is to, to lessen the burden on these companies and give them an opportunity to kind of still serve the user to a certain extent. Right. So you'll see often, um, uh, you know, companies, they'll, they'll dish out like these emails and be like, oh, we've updated our privacy policy. These are certain areas that we've updated it. Most of us are not reading it, right? Most of us are just kind of clicking through and just using that platform for what is use case is. And a lot of the times, and, and this is, happens to me sometimes, sometimes you'll even use a platform not even knowing what its entire use case is. You might just look for a certain element of it. And you can say that for the same thing for an iPhone, right? I probably use the iPhone for a certain, for certain apps and um, you know, uh, functionalities versus how you use your iPhone or your, your phone for certain functionalities, right? And sometimes I feel like I'm not using a platform or technology to, to its full, fullest capacity. But the intent that I'm using it for is the intent that for me, let's say as a consumer, it is my responsibility to understand what's happening when I'm using the technology for my purpose and whether or not I'm giving that use case, uh, the company, that, that the avenue for that use case, if you know what I'm trying to say. Right. So and the problem is, and you go back to the whole like 20 page thing, is that when a, a company is draft or when a lawyer is drafting 
you know, a 20, 30 page terms of use is how you kind of define it is that we're looking at like or as many possible scenarios that could happen of how prohibited users or users using the, the actual use case, but also people bad actors of how they shouldn't be using it, right? So that's why it gets so long because we're like, okay, what if this scenario happens? How do we kind of protect ourselves from a liability perspective? And what if this case happens? And, you know, same thing, right? So, uh, you know, as a, as a company and as somebody who's kind of creating this technology, we have to kind of make sure that they're protected and they kind of flourish innovation. And also from a consumer perspective, you have to make sure you understand what you're kind of getting yourself into at the same time, right? Yeah, that's fair. The companies do need to protect themselves as much as sometimes we like to pit people versus companies, yeah. you know, and say, oh, they're all bad. All they want is our money. At the end of the day, it's people that are running these companies and they, they have, they're trying to build something. We got we to gotta think about protecting the people building that, that entity and the people who are benefiting from the products and services of that entity. So, so I, I, I get it. I hope I did see this. this I don't remember the name. I'm not going to invent a name, but like a, yeah. a, a GPT tool where you put the link to the privacy policy and it'll explain it to you in, in weekend language or, or everyday yeah. language. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of disclaimer around like, you know, use at your own risk type of thing, but, but tools like that, or, or I hope that there is a public facing like weekend language version. And then, you know, the real thing, um, I'm hoping that that, that that comes about more, more frequently, uh, as, as people build, uh, interesting tools. Yeah. And I think that is, Evan, I think that there definitely is a shift towards that. Like you mentioned, I think there is uh, a lot of lawyers are kind of seeing if there's a, a policy or if there's something that consumers are using on a daily basis and they need to kind of understand it to a granular level, there is a way to kind of distill that in weekend language. There is. You know, as lawyers, we like to use like big terms and, and, and uh, sometimes words that are subjected to encapsulate a lot of different meetings. And, and uh, there is a use case for that as well, especially when you're dealing with a vast majority of people who are going to be using a certain thing and you don't want to make something 30, 40 pages and you just want to make it into one paragraph concise and cohesive and that kind of stuff. But there is, I, I do see, there, there's a lot of uh, apps out there if you want to put it into the description. Termly is a good one. I think that they, they kind of uh, simplify um, your privacy policy. I think you could just put their, your link into the the... Uh, their website and you can get get a spit out of privacy policy. But the companies that are dealing with, I would say, more specific industries, they have to get that tailored, right? Because they don't know what regulations that they have to kind of comply to. And a lawyer is the only one who's going to be able to be like, okay, yes, I understand that your privacy policy is X or your terms of use says X, but here's other things that you may not consider, right? Yeah, yeah. You spoke about our, yeah, uh, the, the regulate, regulatory, um, the regulation isn't bad. And, and they do, in, in most cases, I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in yeah. many or most cases, they exist to protect the consumer and, and also just provide an even playing field for everyone who wants to play in that industry and that space. Yeah. Do you think that our legal system is equipped to handle the rate of innovation? Or do you think we're a little behind? Or are there certain areas that are, you know, able to equip and other areas are behind. What what are you seeing? I think that the, the rate in which innovation uh, and uh, regulation kind of uh, expand and 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 kind of adapt to inclusive. I don't think there there's ever going to be a scenario where regulation and uh, technology is, is 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 adapting and changing at the exact same level, right? I 
like I mentioned earlier, I think the technology is always going to be a lot more rapid, right? You have a lot more players in that field than you do the regulatory field. And not only that, by way of like quantity, you also have, um, uh, I would say, like different jurisdictions or different minds that are played in the regulatory field that kind of affect the technology in different ways. So, for example, if there's somebody overseas in, let's say, India or, or Pakistan who is like developing an app and how that app affects the jurisdiction in Pakistan might be different of how that affects Canada and what the regulatory uh, you know, players or stakeholders uh, or regulators kind of view that technology. And a good example of this is Uber, right? When Uber was first created or you know established in America, there was a lot of pushback from uh, specific states and towns and areas. That after they got over the, that hurdle, we still had issues within Canada, City of Toronto specifically, that had issues with Uber and how it expanded and stuff. So how regulators view certain things within where technology is kind of uh, birthed, right, or where it, it kind of comes up in the first place, is is also a friction of how it kind of adapts, right? So there's so many different, I would say, elements of how regulation kind of evolves and and kind of understands where technology is that I don't ever believe that. I wouldn't say it's the legal system. It's just that there's so many players that are involved, so many opinions, so much of a process that has to be done in order to kind of say, here, this is a law which you have to follow because there might be one certain technology or a platform that's equipped to kind of handle this regulatory burden and others that are not. And that might also create a monopoly, right? Like, for example, if they created um, an opportunity for Uber to flourish and all these other companies like Lyft and uh, the other ride-sharing companies not that, that don't have the same market share of Uber, and Uber can kind of levy these fines and 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 go through registration and go through whatever they have to go through in order to be compliant. And these other smaller companies not, then you're kind of creating a, a barrier for entry in the market and and giving Uber the opportunity to be monopolized or whatever that company is, right? And not having a even playing field for other players to enter the market, right? So there's a lot there's a lot that goes in, uh, into it. So I wouldn't say there's ever going to be a scenario where they're going to be even, Stephen. Uh, I think there's always going to be one. And it's always going to be technology, in my opinion, uh, that's going to always be flourishing and always going to be adapting a lot faster than regulation. And it's always been like that. Yeah. I love, I think Uber is one of the great success stories of started illegal, but accomplished, like solved a real problem. Yeah. The taxi services in, I mean, I'm in Montreal, you're in Toronto, everywhere was not great. You mm. never knew when it was going to arrive. They weren't that nice. They didn't accept card. You had to have cash. And then Uber comes along and you can see where the car is and how long and the you know, credit card and all that. And um, I remember it was a funny time where like you, you couldn't sit in the front there. You had to pretend that it was your friend. There are all these rules to get it, but like they've managed to get through. It would be awesome if one day they would to, to publish a playbook or, or just their learnings on navigating regulation so that other yeah. people in other industries can take inspiration from what Uber did and how they were able to successfully get um, to a regulatory... There's actually a, there's actually a good book and that was adapted into a TV show called Super Pumped, which uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt... Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it. It's like a, I think it's a limited series. It was probably like 11 episodes. It's based off okay. the book that was uh, written based off of Uber's basically fight with uh, California, the state of California and the, the laws and the stuff that they had to kind of go through privacy issues that they kind of... Um, let's say, paused uh, in order to kind of ensure that they had the flourish of their technology. It's a great book. It's a really good book. And the, the TV show is a real good adaptation, in my opinion, as well. So that gives you a good understanding of like what they had to do in order to kind of flourish as a company. 
and a lot of that uh, the TV show is based off of their their issues with regulators. Wow, I'm gonna check that yeah. out because I'm very curious. And 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 speaking of like another great, but this I would call it more of like in progress, and that's Coinbase. They are really doing, yeah. at least from a public facing perspective. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but from a public facing perspective, they really positioning themselves as we are for the people. Or not for the people's maybe pushing a little bit, but we are for working with regulators so that the people can enjoy and benefit from the services that we're offering. And but I, I would say maybe a little bit more than that. It's not just the services that we're offering, but other crypto platforms. Yeah. Right? Their idea is that let's be the the beacon of hope for these other crypto platforms, so we can kind of go to court. We can kind of speak with the uh, you know the whatever regulatory bodies that we have to deal with the SEC, whatever. And, and talk to them and be like, hey, listen, there there needs to be change in order for us to flourish and for access to to these platforms for consumers to use it because consumers are using it regardless, right? That's that's one of the things that you you've often seen in regulation specifically. Uh, and a good example of this is piracy, right? People are using it regardless, right? Whether or not you're going to have like these large fines of it, people are still doing it, right? So you have to meet in the middle somewhere where you're just like, okay, either we create a deterrent for people to not use it and kind of give opportunity for businesses to succeed and get money from their actual original works, right? Instead of having privacy. But at the same time, keep it under a bubble where we can kind of oversee and make it more fair for other consumers. Because there might be people who, like retail consumers who get into these markets and you've seen it, right? Um, Discord groups that are kind of pulling the rug underneath a lot of these investors and stuff, right? So you, you need to kind of have regulators to kind of Make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. But there's the other side, like you know, the the, the I would say the wild west who don't doesn't want to deal with this at all, right? So there's two extremes. But I definitely believe that there is a middle ground for for both these sides. Absolutely. I mean, we're 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 dealing with like we're we're humans. There are good people. There are bad people. At the end of the day, and there needs to be a group or or a governing body who can protect the good people from the bad people. And it's really unfortunate that you know, SBF. Sam Bankman-Fried and, yeah. and FTX, you know, pretty much brought the, I won't say brought the industry down, but like was a significant contributor to a lot of negativity and a lot of, um, um, not pushback, I'm trying to find the word of like taking steps backwards in terms of the progress yeah. that we were being, that was being made in the industry. Uh, but, but I'm glad to see Coinbase stepping up to the plate. I'm hoping that other big ones like Crypto.com, Binance, uh, at least in North America, those seem to be the, the largest ones. I hope that they take a step forward in doing the same either with Coinbase or like on their own. But if you've got the three biggest heavy hitting uh, crypto exchanges, that's definitely going to leave an impact and, and get a lot of people to support. Um, what is your, what's a hot take that you have? What's something that you really believe you're seeing in your space that maybe certain people either don't know or might disagree with you in terms of emerging tech, whether that's crypto, AI, and law. I think that, uh, I think there's a, so so not, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a hot take, but I think that a lot of lawyers and, and law firms and, you know, people who are in the legal space are not necessarily uh, addressing a certain concern within the crypto web three space, which is uh, the new, I would say 18 to 22 year old, young uh, spirited entrepreneurs who are kind of operating in this space, whether it's creating new ideas within NFTs or you know doing these peer to peer lending platforms that they're creating or um, uh, you know anything that they're doing, tokenomics, all that kind of stuff. 
I think there's a, there's a real need to kind of mentor those specific, uh, you know, entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of law firms are kind of shying away from them because there isn't a lot of regulation or regulatory oversight. And my personal opinion, and I think that my take on that is I kind of want to be that person for those entrepreneurs because I do believe, and I do believe in a lot of their projects they're, that they're, they're creating out. And I, I, I feel there are a lot more, like you mentioned before, a lot more good actors than there are bad actors that want to be compliant. And they want to kind of create legitimate businesses that are actually making cool, amazing uh, pieces of art or, or actually helping people like payment platforms that are kind of allowing for people to kind of pay things uh, without the need of uh, you know exorbitant fees back home, sending money back home, that kind of stuff, right? So there are some great projects that are in the works, right? And I think that a lot of these projects need the that that legal mind to kind of help them stay compliant so that when they are a little bit more bigger they don't have to kind of work backwards because they're going to go to these bigger law firms or they're going to go to uh, people who are a lot more expert in in a certain field uh and and a lot of them are just going to shy them away be like oh you don't have enough money to kind of um you know purchase me or 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 pay my billable with that kind of stuff but also the other hand is like i don't know if i really want to get into your industry because a little bit more sketchy a little more more gray space, gray area. Uh, and you kind of have to get down dirty. You have to go into like the Twitter spaces. You have to, you know, jump on discords. You have to speak to people in these WhatsApp groups. Sometimes even go to like pizza parties in the park uh, and talk to these founders because they don't know that side of regulation. They don't know what, what um, even how to stay compliant or whether or not they're, what they're doing. They're not even worried about that because they, they just, they're operating a space that the regulars aren't really giving them uh, a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, insight towards what that might happen in the future, but also some of the the, you know, the players in the space that are you know maybe help them kind of construct their corporate. Uh, the corporations are not really giving them their ear, so uh, I, I really believe that there is a space in that sector. Yeah. So speaking to those eighteen to twenty-two, or let's just forget he. Let's say someone sure. who may not know too much about how to work with a lawyer and the importance of working with a lawyer. How would one how do you know you found a good lawyer? Like, how would you know that A, they know their stuff and B, they can provide me with that guidance slash mentorship to make sure that I'm still being compliant, but also calling out the gray areas or the areas that I really should not play in because it's illegal? I guess there, there's two main ways, right? You either find a lawyer through referrals, which is most of our business, right? My business specifically, a lot of it comes through referrals, right? I'll do some great work for a client. He really liked the way that I was kind of uh, you know, providing that service to him. He enjoyed the way that the entire in- interaction happened and he was happy with the results, right? They will go and they'll tell their friend, their grandpa, their whoever they have in their, in their family members or, 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 you know, somebody they went to school with and then I'll get that business that way. The second way, which is, a li- I would say, a lot more difficult is that some people don't have networks, right? They don't have that network to be like, oh, I know a lawyer, right? And if you do, sometimes you don't even know the right lawyer. You can go to a criminal lawyer and be like, hey, listen, I'm creating this new company and I need to help incorporate. And this guy's like, be like, I, I do speeding tickets on the weekend. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? So there is that element of like not going to the right person. And uh, when you're doing it online, it, it might be a little bit difficult because I would say a lot of lawyers are not good at marketing themselves. You go online, you might see like Google reviews of like 4.5 and there's only like 10 reviews on them. Or, or even myself, I don't really use Google reviews, but look for ones who are kind of active voices in your space. Right. So if you see somebody who's like, okay, you're a crypto company or you're somebody in the Web3 space, whether it's AI, whether it's um, uh, NFTs, and you see somebody who's often working in that space, whether they're 
providing free content, whether they're, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what they're doing on a daily basis, or they have that little insight to it. And you can do it by simply getting on a call with them and just asking them questions, right? Like interview them. Hey, listen, I'm operating this space and I, and I need your advice. What would you do in this scenario? Some of them might not take your call because they think that you have to pay them for it anyway. But some of them who do, and, and you know, you, you, you kind of vibe with them and you feel like this is somebody who can really help me. Those are the type of people you should go to. And content is huge in my opinion. I think a lot of lawyers will write blog posts and they'll be subject matter experts in that, in that area. Read their blog posts, um, engage with their content follow them on LinkedIn or Instagram or TikTok, wherever they are. And then you'll kind of get familiarized with how they kind of conduct their work. And that's how you can kind of choose your lawyer. Okay. So look at their online presence and then have an intro call, see how it, how you feel. And then pretty much. Especially in technology. There. Like if, you, if you're a lawyer in technology and you're not kind of marketing yourself use by way of technology, it's kind of like sets a bad impression, right? If you're not like writing blog. Flag, yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's a yellow flag. It's like, you need to you need to kind of put yourself out there and let people know, you know, I'm somebody who's engaging in technology uh, and helping people in that space specifically. What's uh, what's something that you wish people either came to a lawyer for first before like a fire started or uh, that you say to everyone like, hey, make sure you have this thing covered before you start. Like, what's something that people should know? Shareholders Share agreement, shareholders agreement. Share. I'll say it three times and I'll say it proud. A lot of times, well, it depends because because like when people are starting businesses, most of the time they start business with their friends, somebody that they met in maybe an incubator you know, through their MBA program, that's kind of stuff, right? But a lot of the times, I would say, uh, I think there was a statistic out there by CD Insight that talked about how one of the, 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 the top five reasons of why a company fails in the first two years of, of launching is because of legal issues, right? That happened between uh, the founders. And... Uh, a lot of that could be resolved by way of a shareholder agreement because this one document will dictate how you kind of deal with not just yourself and the other shareholder, but also how you kind of interact with the company. Because sometimes what people think is that shareholder agreement is, you know, like, for example, Evan and I, we created a company together and we had a shareholder agreement. It's just about how we interact with each other. But in reality, that third party is also the company. So, for example, if we're kind of bringing in a new investor, instead of us forcing ourselves to kind of sell our shares, we can kind of issue new shares and then dilute our shares, right? And how we interact with each other and the, and the company and how we kind of do that process, that's all written in the shareholder agreement. Well, at least a good shareholder's agreement, right? So a shareholder's agreement, I think, is one of the most important documents. And some people template it. And I shy away from templating this specific document specifically, even if you don't have the money to do it. Because a shareholder agreement will kind of dictate how you kind of uh, navigate your way from disputes, but also how you kind of navigate your way from if, for example, uh, there's a business decision that both parties are not kind of, uh, you know, on, on the same side for, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's that's one of the agreements that I always ask for specifically. And I say, if I'm going to work with you, I need to make sure, especially at the, the primary stages of a company, like, I think you need a shareholder agreement because if you're going to grow your business, investors are going to look at that as well, right? They want to know how you've issued shares, your corporate minute book, which is like the, the, the documentation of all that kind of stuff. They want to see that, right? And uh, as you grow your business and how, how you, as you kind of, kind of legitimize your corporate structure and your corporate documents, shareholder agreement, in my opinion, is probably the most important. Are we? So, because I agree with that 100%. I, I started, you know, a company before had had 
lucky that I'm still friends with with all the guys and, and everything. Yeah. Um, like we never had like major shareholder I- issues. Uh, we had, a, I think, probably a templated one, but whatever. We got lucky. I will say we, we were lucky. But in the crypto space, there's a lot of people who are pro this decentralization, uh, pro, well, yeah, pro decentralization. And now one of the key slash most important documents is a shareholder agreement that is federally centralized and regulated. I love it that. It feels yeah. like there's a clash, right? How do you tell a founder who's like, I'm all for decentralization, all of that stuff. Then it's like, well, listen, you still need to register with the government of your, like in yeah. our case, Canada. Exactly. So th- that's actually one of the, that's a real, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because you have a lot of founders with the, within the Web3 space who will come to you and be like, hey, listen, I want to start a DAO, right? A decentralized autonomous organization. And you're like, okay, great. Uh, awesome. You know what a DAO does? Yeah, I know what a DAO does. Like you have like these governance tokens. Each person can basically issue a token. You basically, the, the, the organization issues a token and we can all vote on the business changes and that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Great. Um, do you know that the, the Canada doesn't necessarily recognize DAOs as corporations unless you incorporate, right? Oh, that's interesting. And do you, do you also know that there are certain things that, um, uh, you know, the, uh, a corporation, like the benefits of a corporation that have that your DAO may not have? Things like liability protection, things like I- identifying from a legal perspective that a corporation is a separate legal entity from you. So, for example, if your DAO is ever sued, guess what? Every single person that is a part of that DAO uh, has a risk of their pro- personal assets being basically within that lawsuit. So, for example, if the DAO is, is doing, you know, found uh, liable for a, a, a certain action and they have to pay out, let's say, a million dollars or two million dollars, um, there's even if the, the, the DAO only has 100K in their treasury, right? The personal assets of every other member is now at stake because you don't have a separate legal entity versus a corporation. If, for example, that corporation is, this is obviously typical generalized. We're not talking about piercing the corporate bill or any of that kind of stuff. We're just saying that the cor- corporation has $100,000 in the treasury um, and they're sued for $2 million. It could cap at that 100000 potentially. So there are certain things like liability protection and other um, you know, elements that corporations, uh, or sorry, benefits that the corporations have uh, through the eyes of the government of Canada that DAOs don't have. And if you're in this whole idea of decentralized, that's great for you. It's, in theory, it's great. But in reality, as it functions uh, in Canada, you may not get that benefit. So you'll have to kind of teeter-totter or kind of look at the benefits and costs of whether or not you want to move the, in that direction. And I always say, you can you can govern yourself like a DAO, great. But guess what? You still have to incorporate. Yeah, yeah. And for the sake of accuracy, I, I just remember we didn't, me and my, my company, we didn't use a template shareholders agreement. But I love I, I love what you're saying because I remember I'd watched this Gary Vee video. He, he was doing a talk and he was doing a, a Q&A section. Yeah. Some guy was saying like, hey, I, I want to start a cannabis company, but I live in a state where cannabis is illegal. Like, what do I do? And Gary Vee's like, well, pack up and leave. Like, yeah. you, you want to start this thing and you're not allowed to. So go to a place where you are allowed to. I feel like that same narrative applies here where, okay, you want to start a DAO, you want all the decentralization benefits, but if you want to do it in Canada, this is the sandbox that you're in. This is the space you got to play in. And it's up to you to decide if you want to take on that personal liability or if you're going to incorporate, yeah. operate as a DAO. And eventually, maybe at some point in time, DAOs will be recognized in the eyes of the government as a sovereign thing or whatever. And, and then you can adapt your structure uh, in that case. Are there any, are you aware of any like, geographic territories who recognize DAOs Cayman as a Island. sovereign? 
Cayman? They're the only ones or are there others? I don't know if they're the only ones. I, the one that I always on top of my head whenever somebody asks is Cayman Islands. A lot of people start their organizations there and they see if they can get some sort of like tax benefits and that kind of stuff. But if they're operating um, uh, in the Cayman Islands, they, they do recognize DAOs as legal entities. Okay. And I guess you'd have yeah. to have your home base there or like your headquarters there or something like that. I, off the top of my head, I don't know how the process of incorporating okay. in the Cayman Islands is, but like I do have somebody who anytime somebody, like one of my clients asked me for it, I, I kind of direct them to them. Like, yeah, there's somebody who can help you incorporate in that jurisdiction and they can kind of answer all the legal questions, that kind of stuff. So in short, respect the rules of Canada or your local, wherever you live. Yeah. If you want to go all in on the Dow stuff, Cayman Islands right now is your is probably your best yeah. bet. Okay. And another okay. another interesting thing is that a lot of people, not just the Cayman Islands, because there's like for example, Canada has like here's your here your like if you're incorporating, here's the rules you have to follow, right? Not just by way of the process of corporation, but this is what a corporation has to follow. These are regulations that you have to follow. These are things that you have to file your taxes on an annual basis. You have to do X, Y, Z, right? There are different jurisdictions around the world that people are now kind of gravitating towards, for example, the United Arab Emirates and Dubai specifically, where they're like, oh, you, you know, there's a tax-free uh, opportunity there where businesses can kind of live in a certain area or operate online and uh, be very remote and, and kind of get that benefit of being tax-free and not paying any taxes and that kind of stuff. So I would say, you know, one of the things that my company does specifically, my law firm as Cloudhouse Law, is that we have partnerships with jurisdictions around the world. So people in Dubai who kind of help people incorporate in Dubai. So uh, the great thing is that there there is that opportunity for instead of packing your bags and leaving, like Gary Vee said, you can live remotely, right? You can live in a big area. Uh, a lot of people do that as digital nomads. That they'll, they'll be traveling the world and living in places that are a lot more uh, financially feasible. And they'll have these companies that are operating remotely cloud-based, if you will, cloud law, right? Um, uh, and, and operating in a way that they can still service their consumers all around the world, but get the benefits of that jurisdiction. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So talk to your lawyer. It's essentially. The, yeah, the, exactly. The, especially because, because you, you don't want to spend, especially as founders and, and like early founding teams, you spend so much of your time, energy, money, um, your mental health, physical health suffers and you're trying to do everything right and then to be hit with a large fine or to be yeah. forced to shut down because you did not, you purposely did not pay attention to the legal elements uh, in your jurisdiction. I feel like it'd be such a sad way for a company to, to shut down if they were building something really good. So yeah, talking to And one more thing that I would like to add here, like I know a lot of times, like I would say when people are listening to this, they'll probably think that like, oh, the government is the bad actor that's going to come and shut us down. But in reality, from a legal perspective, there are three ways that you can probably get into a legal issue when you're starting a company. Right? The first one is obviously um, regulatory issues, right? You might face, and this might come not the first year, five years down the road, you might be hit with a fine on some of the statutes or legislation that you didn't follow and now you're getting you know, in trouble for it. The second way is obviously founders issues between partners, right? If you don't have the right legal documentation, then you're, you're, you're faced with a situation where maybe a founder leaves and he's running away with 50% of the shares of the company and you don't know how to kind of stop that person, right? Or uh, contracts and legal documentation with your actual clients and your, your customers or your users, right? That's another way that, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff happens. So sometimes people think that like, oh, I'm going to go out of business because I don't have, because the government's after me. But it's also legal documentation that you may not have with your own partners and with your users and your clients, right? So things like I mentioned in the, in, in the beginning of this podcast is like things like terms of service, right? Uh, how you engage with your clients and your users and your customers. 
you know, things like your shareholders agreement, how you engage with your shareholders and your business partners, and then things like your privacy policy, kind of to wrap everything up, how you engage with regulator, to the regulatory bodies, right? Registration requirements that you may need to kind of uphold and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's, it's, it's a full swing of things that you may have to kind of consider, but that's why you go to a lawyer. And, and my not quote unquote pitches to all these young entrepreneurs or people who just don't understand the regulatory or the legal spaces that let me deal with that. And you deal with growing your business, right? If you have a great product, focus on that. If you're a great business mind and you know how to kind of, uh, you know, uh, convince people to or persuade people to buy your product or your service and that kind of stuff, focus on that. Grow your company and let me deal with the legal stuff. Urbaz has got it. I, I don't even have a crypto company, but I, I, I hire you right now. If I <laughs> um, we're, we're approaching the end. I, I, I'll give you the option, two questions. One sure. is what, what advice would you, would you give to young, innovative tech companies? I know you, you dropped some really interesting things. So uh, yeah. if there was something that you hadn't shared that you'd like to share, uh, that, that would be question one. And, and question two, I guess they both feed into each other, is what is something that you haven't shared that you also feel would be important for people to know? I think one thing that a lot of young founders, not I, I use the word young often, I would say a lot of founders could start doing is following the right people on LinkedIn. Because you'll see a lot of content and gems like yourself, Evan, uh, who you can kind of learn a lot from. Even if it's just them sharing articles and, and content that is not even their use, what they see valuable or so what they see value in, you can actually draw from as well, right? There's a lot of free information online, but to distill that into things that's useful for you as a company, it's sometimes difficult. So thinking like you can just go on Google and kind of finding that information yourself, you don't know if it's qualified, if it's credible, if it's good information for your specific niche. So find people within your area of expertise, within your business that you can kind of learn from. And LinkedIn is a great space for that. You'll see a lot of, not necessarily LinkedIn influencers, but professionals who are within a specific industry who are sharing free nuggets of advice, right? And you can get that information by just going on their feed and reading it. And then this information is like one to two minutes of, of, of something that you have to read. And you'll start having this more of uh, like this value that's going to be added to your company that you won't even know was kind of, ex that existed before, right? So I would say that's, that's a great probably point. Thing. Yeah. I I'm glad you, you said that because the, the, LinkedIn influencer type people, I'm not, not, I'm not going to diss them or, or throw hate towards them, but not all of them are necessarily experts, right? There's a yeah. bunch of AI LinkedIn influencer people that have not studied AI and, and no disrespect to them. Everyone's doing their thing, but I, I, I do see immense value in trying to find and follow the people who have a smaller following just because they're not on LinkedIn 24 seven, they're actually in the field of their thing. And then they're posting once a week or once every two weeks or whenever they feel like it. But when they say something, it is super relevant because they yeah. are an AI researcher or, or um, tokenization uh, expert, right? Uh, so, so I wish LinkedIn had lists so that we can create these. I can create a feed of like either legal or crypto or whatever. Um, but uh, one day, hopefully. hopefully Herbad, this, yeah, was, good. This, was, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have links to, to all of your... your um, places online where people can reach you. So if you want to share right now where people can reach you right now, if they're, if they're listening, they can, they can just find you. What, where, where can people find you? Sure. So I'm primarily active on LinkedIn. Uh, I post frequently on LinkedIn. I try my best to do a couple of posts a day. I, I talk about things like crypto, Web3, AI, privacy. Um, my, my main pitch is something that I'm actually kind of developing as I, I kind of gain my following and and create a community is I, I think I want to start making a newsletter where people kind of can get free access to it. And it'll be like 
a quick tidbit of information, one to two minutes that you can get into your inbox, free information on how to kind of kind of stay compliant with crypto and regulation and that kind of stuff. So yeah, look out for that soon. Um, hopefully launching it sometime next month. Um, yeah, and LinkedIn is the best way to kind of follow me. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Urbaz, for your time. And thank you everyone for listening. See awesome. you next time.